Hey, welcome back to the Life of an Average Joe podcast. I hope you guys had a second or a minute to check out the Life of an Average Joe podcast.com. It's got everything you need right in that one umbrella. It's got all the videos, all the links uh, to every podcast you might have missed, different platforms. Uh, it's got all the episodes of Trash Talk, sponsors, a blog to go along with the podcast, um, pictures, email subscription, merchandise corner. Pretty excited about it. Something I should have done a long time ago, but I like to do things different. I think I was too busy focusing on all the projects I had. What I was going to stick with. Was I going to put everything under one? You know, how I was going to roll with that. And then as you kind of go through and you start saying, okay, I'm going to not do this project. I'm going to slide this project over there. You kind of just get into focus a little bit better. And now I'm more focused and I know what needs to happen. And that website has been a great tool. So check it out, the life of an average Joe podcast.com. Or you can email me as well to the life of an average Joe podcast at gmail.com. But that's all on there. Wanted to throw that out there because it's been a great, it's been a great asset. Don't know why it took me so long, but it's been a great asset. Man, if you guys don't recognize that song, if you don't recognize any music from David Bowie, I feel sorry for you because David Bowie has got to be one of the most talented musicians, artists, uh, just individuals to ever grace this planet. I mean, and and it was hard for me to pick that song actually because there's so many Bowie songs that I like better than Rebel Rebel. I just felt like that song made sense to do it for this intro, especially with this podcast being about David Bowie. Um, I, you know, I, it's something I wanted to do. I don't really spend a lot of time on, you know, artists as far as talking about musicians. I talk about music, talk about concerts, talk about things that I, you know, who I like, what I'm listening to, but I don't really dive into music very much. I did the Tupac one, you know, last month, and I think that was last month, but Bowie, and, and I'm looking at it like, well, these are all artists that are a huge part of my life. And this is the life of an average Joe. So why not talk about it? Why not talk about David Robert Hayward Jones, a.k.a. David Bowie, born January 8th, 1947 in London? Because a lot of people don't know about him. And that's, let me, let, me, let me rewind that stupid statement. A lot of people that know Bowie and a lot of my younger listeners don't realize what Bowie did for the world. They, they have no idea. They have no clue what he did. They have, they have no clue musically what he did, how he broke so many barriers, what he did as far as fashion, what he did in Hollywood. Just, just a really great, interesting man. And David Bowie, for me, has been somebody that's been in my top tier, favorite artist list, Longer than most, he has not changed. When I talk about top five musicians, top five artists, top five you know, song, singer-songwriters, whatever you want to say, David Bowie's there. Not only is he there, he's higher than most. And it started a long time ago, and I've told this story so many times, and I think I've even mentioned it on one of my old episodes. So I'm going to tell it again because... You can't talk about David Bowie without telling about my history with David Bowie and what it means to me and kind of where he came from. Not where he came from, where my somewhat obsession maybe came from. I was young. 
I was very young when, when I first discovered David Bowie. I knew the name David Bowie. I, you know, I knew that he did music. I, I knew that he was a rock star. I knew, you know, but I didn't know much about him. And we were going to the movies. And this was a drive-in movie theater, which some of those are still around. I know they are. But not many. But back in the day, before they kind of disappeared, they were huge. And typically, typically, at a drive-in theater, you got to go see two movies. You paid for one, but they would show you a second one. At least they did back in the day. The last movie that I saw in the drive-in theater, by the way, was Shaft. And I'm not talking the original Shaft. I'm talking Shaft with Samuel L. Jackson. I saw that back in Detroit when Shaft first came out, so... That was a long time ago. I don't think that movie theater's around anymore. I think COVID finally destroyed it, which is interesting because you would think a drive-in movie theater during COVID, when you're just sitting in your car, you don't even have to get out, would work. It might save the failing movie industry or the failing theater industry. But anyway, somebody smarter than me can figure that out because I, I, don't, I don't want to. But I, we were going to see the movie, The, the Never-Ending Story. Great movie. Gosh, I, I love that movie. It's one of those classic fantasy movies. Um, and we're going to see The NeverEnding Story. But after it was Labyrinth. came out in 1986. Similar, another fantasy musical, Jim Henson, puppets, real characters type story to The NeverEnding Story. Very, very compatible. Perfect double feature. 1986. I was born in 1978. So you can see how young I was. And I went with my parents. It was just, you know, my sister wasn't born yet. It was me, my mom, and my dad. After the never-ending story ended, we were going to leave. But I was like, wait a minute, there's another movie coming up. Why are we leaving? We can't go. We got to stay. And it was Labyrinth. And I had seen the previews. I'd heard about it. And look, it's number one, I'm at a movie theater, so I'm excited. Number two, I get to watch two movies. Like, this is awesome. I was in my pajamas, too, because the movie theater was going to get out, or the movie was going to get out later. By the time we got home, it was going to be time for me to just call it a night, go to bed. Now it was going to be even later. And that was the big argument that my mom had. I'm throw her under the bus for a little bit. Um, was that she was like, look, it's late. We don't need to see this. You know, I don't want to watch it. I don't think she liked Bowie at all. I vaguely remember her saying something about him being in it. And then my dad said, let's stay. And I remember laying on the roof, or not the roof, yeah, I guess the hood of the car, not the roof, blanket on, watching the movie. Window was down, I could hear the speaker, watching Labyrinth. And from the minute it started, I was into it because it's a really great, magical story. And just coming off the, the, the high that I had with the never-ending story, this worked. This totally matched up and I was excited about it and I just remember watching it because within the first few minutes I'll say 20 minutes of the movie maybe a little bit more probably not much more than that David Bowie makes his entrance as the Goblin King with his Tina Turner style hair his multicolored eyes the infamous tight pants and he's there and Bowie just had this presence about him 
he, he had a presence about him wherever he went, whether he was in character in a movie, whether he was on stage, whether he was just in a photograph. He was just this unique individual. And his voice, I mean, it was recognizable across the world. And so as he said those first lines in Labyrinth, I was like, oh, I love David Bowie. And then, of course, the music. So from that night on, I remember I'd eat up everything about David Bowie. Whenever he was on MTV, when I, I, you know, I, I couldn't just go online in 1986 and look for David Bowie. I had to find stuff about him. I had to get the Labyrinth soundtrack, and then I had to go buy some, some other tapes, and then I had to go buy you know, this David Bowie tape and vinyl. And because this, again, 1986, no CDs. Bowie was played on the radio, but you better catch it and try to record it. I couldn't just go download stuff. I couldn't watch YouTube. I couldn't go to Spotify. I had to get to the record store. And at 1986, a young kid getting in the record store was tough. Luckily, I'm resourceful. And I would sit here and talk to my friends their older brothers and sisters. And I would network that way by collecting as much David Bowie music and material as I can. And this was also back in the day of when magazines were huge, but you had your rock magazines. You had your teeny bop magazines. You had your rock, uh, cla- you know, well, it wasn't classic rock. It was just rock and roll, heavy metal magazines. And I could go to the store in the magazine section and buy those magazines. It was usually like I would buy WWF magazine because I was a huge wrestling fan. I mean, especially in the 80s. I'm still a wrestling fan. Going to WrestleMania in a couple months. Um, God, that's next month, isn't it? Holy crap. Oh, no, it's March. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I could buy these rock magazines. And, and genuinely, because during that time, what Bowie was doing as far as a tour goes, who he was singing with, he was in them. And I would just buy all this stuff about Bowie and learn about David Bowie. And it never, ever stopped. It just kept going to here we are, 2022, at 43 years old, and I'm recording a podcast which really centers around David Bowie. It just never stopped. But Bowie was that type of person. Bowie has transcended through the decades. Some artists don't do that very well. Bowie did. What made Bowie interesting the most was just kind of where he came from, who he was. You know, because he, he was a punk rocker. He was a pop star. He was a glam rock star. He was, he was so ahead of his time in what he did for the music industry. I mean, when you look at David Bowie and, and you look at really what he did musically, it was unheard of example. Look at his image. You know, look at Bowie's image. His kind of teeth were a little jacked up. He was a big jazz fan. I mean, he started playing the saxophone at age 13. He attended the same high school with Peter Frampton. And when you look at him coming from jazz, I know there's a picture floating around um, where he was playing the saxophone in like a jazz band. You can see that influence that he brought jazz 
into his rock, which was unheard of at the time. David Bowie formed his first band in 1962. It was called the Conrads. K-O-N dash R-A-D-S. 1962. He was also a member of the Hooker Brothers and then the King Bees. And what he did in that band, from guitar to saxophone, you really got to see his kind of his stage presence. He, he really tried to kind of formulate who he was. In 1966 was when David Bowie came to be. So we had a lead, we had a singer of the monkeys, Davy Jones. David Bowie tried to be something like that. Like he tried to use almost the same name as the lead singer of the monkeys, Davy Jones. He thought, why not? I can do this. Why not? Later realized that was a bad idea. So he, he became David Bowie because of the Bowie knife, Jim Bowie, who, who created the Bowie knife. And he, he liked that name, Bowie. So he took David Bowie. And a year later, he released his first album, 1967. And he was David Bowie. And David Bowie hit. Actually, I think it was 19... I don't think his first album was 1960. I could be wrong. Anyway. Yeah, I think it was 1967. But David Bowie has such a ring to it now. I mean, could you imagine if he were to try to stick to Davy Jones? That just wouldn't work. You can't have two David Jones. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. But he found himself and realized, okay, I can sing, I can play guitar, I can play saxophone. He dabbled in the drums a little, but that's not what Bowie was known for. He could write... I got to start doing something different. And he really started to formulate this character because he was an oddity. He was a strange guy. He would write some punk songs, but then he'd turn around and write a love ballad to jazz music. But then he would write a rock song to jazz music. Like it was, he just had this unique vision and he believed that music needed to be all about progression, moving to the future. He wanted to tell a story but he didn't want to tell it the same way that all these other songs are, like the Monkees, like the Beatles and all that. He wanted to tell it different. He wanted to tell it David Bowie's way. So in 1969, he released The Space Oddity, which was just days before the, um, God, I think it was like a matter of two days before the U.S. Apollo 11 launched to the moon. It reached the top five in Britain. Huge for David Bowie jumping on the scene. Space Oddity to this Day is probably one of Bowie's masterpieces that people go back to when they talk about Bowie. And he was off. He was developing his character. Grew out his hair long, started to wear different clothes, started to wear the glam rock, face paint, really kind of became a space oddity himself because he was an oddity. He was not your cookie cutter we're going to put out music. Even during that time when music was at its breakthrough moments, David Bowie was very different than that. He started to do everything. He wore women's clothes, so people questioned him. Wear a dress. There's a picture of him and his first wife, Angela Barnett. She was a model. 
think they got married in like 1970. Well, it lasted 10 years. I mean, you know, hey, it's better than most marriages these days. And there's a picture of both of them in the same dress. And people were like, what is Bowie doing? But it drew attention. It grew, it drew fans. It drew everybody in to David Bowie's life of being a space oddity. Every time you turned around, you could see a different development and stage of Bowie. From 1968 to 1970, when he came to the United States, that was his very first trip to the United States, and he was promoting The Man Who Sold the World. Great song. Oddly enough, Nirvana, when they did their MTV Unplugged, I think Nirvana does it better than Bowie. And I don't think anybody's going to ever hear me say that too often about somebody covering Bowie songs. But when Nirvana did that stripped down acoustic version of The Man Who Sold the World on MTV Unplugged, I, I, that's the version I listen to the most. And I listen to the other one and I compare them. They're very different. But he, Kurt Cobain crushed it. I, that, if you guys get a chance and you want to kind of get just how different the songs are, listen to Bowie's version of The Man Who Sold the World and then listen to Nirvana's The Man Who Sold the World. Just wild, wild, wild versions. I, I'm, I would have never thought that Nirvana would do that. And today, that, I still think that's one of Kurt Cobain's best performances. But anyway, I digress. So he went, he went to the United States. And guess what? He took off there too. He took off, took off in the United States and changed his look. It was more fashion, <laughs> ironic enough. But it was more like take the Bee Gees, mix it with a little alienism. I don't even think that's a word. We're going to use it though. When we're talking about David Bowie, you can just make up stuff. You could say alienism and people understand what you mean. Put the stilettos on and be a glam rock star. And that's what Bowie did. And that's when he got the idea for by far one of his most iconic albums ever, 1972, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. That was Bowie's glam rock persona. He created, he finally created this glam rock alter ego, Ziggy Stardust. And he did that all the way into the like 74, 75. And he did a major tour with that, actually probably into the 80s. And that's when you saw Bowie changing his hair color, changing his hairstyle, wearing these space glam rock outfits, the lightning bolt across the face, uh, makeup on his arms, fake tattoos. I mean, he was, he would do changes costume changes, wardrobe changes in a concert more times than Madonna or Cher ever did. Constantly. There'd be concerts where he changes outfit 15 times, 20 times. Huge. But Bowie was making a scene and he was connecting and surrounding or I should say surrounded by so many people. He worked with Lou Reed. He worked with Iggy Pop and the Stooges. Uh, Queen, the Beatles. He was around all these different people. The Rolling Stones pulling influences from them, but also helping them write. I remember in a, in a 1972 interview, this was a big one with Rolling Stone, he said that he was gay. Shocked the world. Shocked it. 
Because again, it's 1972, okay? But then later in 1983, he said he just made that up, just wanted to see what people's reactions were and that he himself was a closet heterosexual. And then at other times he said, well, maybe I'm bi, who knows? And that was the thing with Bowie. When you look at Bowie and how ambiguous his music was and how ambiguous he was, he could be all those things. He could have been gay, could have been bi, could have been a heterosexual. I don't know because of how he interacted with so many people, how he just flowed through in like a chameleon. And, and I, I tell you what, I followed all of that. Obviously not, not, not 1975. I had to go back for that. I wasn't even around yet. <laughs> but I followed all that. I read all that. Bowie's first U.S. number one single, Fame, was huge. Luther Vandross actually performed backup vocals on that album. He also collaborated with John, John Lennon. And was on the album Young Americans. That's the reach that Bowie had. When you look at the people he hung out with and he collaborated with, he was everywhere. But it drew attention from Hollywood as well. And his very first film was The Man Who Fell to Earth. It's based off that book. It's a science fiction film. It's about an alien who travels to Earth seeking help and saving his home planet. Of course, Bowie played the alien. By the way, they are redoing that as a series. There's a series coming out on Showtime very soon, and it's The Man Who Fell to Earth, and I think it's 12 episodes. I'm very curious to see that. You can read about that on MovieWeb. They, they do a good job on that. Wink, wink. But um, Hollywood was calling. The Man Who Fell to Earth was great. It was a great, great movie. But Bowie didn't stop there. After that, he went and did a Christmas show with none other than Bing Crosby. One of my favorite performances ever, The Little Drummer Boy, him and Bing Crosby, 1977 Christmas. That's the one song I think my mom does like. Because I don't think she likes any Bowie. She's missing out. <laughs> but Bowie was a huge part of my life. And, and as I got older, I mean, you can never forget what he did with Freddie Mercury on Under Pressure. You can never forget what he did with at Live Aid, what he sung with Elton John, Tina Turner. I mean, this guy's been everywhere. And when I was in high school, Bowie made another resurgence. Reassur I don't think I'm saying that right. Let's just say a comeback. Even though he never really disappeared, he made a comeback. When he, when he collaborated and toured with Nine Inch Nails, and they did the song, I'm Afraid of Americans. And it was this industrial, 80s rock alternative song. Great video. Um, a really cool video. And that was the time that I finally got to see David Bowie. I got to see David Bowie on New Year's Eve. Can you believe that? Um, with Nine Inch Nails at the Palace Auburn Hills, which isn't even in there anymore. Um, back in Michigan. And I was dating a girl at the time, and we got tickets. We both loved Nine Inch Nails. She kind of liked Bowie, but I was such a huge David Bowie fan. 
that the idea of seeing Bowie and Trent Reznor together was amazing. This was called The Outside Tour. And I think it was 1996. Yeah, it was 1996, The Outside Tour. David Bowie and Nine Inch Nails. And they had another band that opened up for him. But what was great about it was it wasn't really like a headlining situation. Nine Inch Nails would maybe go on first, and then Bowie would come on, then they'd come on together. Then sometimes Bowie would come on first after whoever the opener was, and then vice versa. And it was a really a shared tour. It was great. They did 100 shows. So, I mean, it's a pretty decent tour, you know? It's a pretty pretty solid tour, 100 shows. They had, I think, 10 different opening acts. Um, they said that it was one of the greatest concerts. In 2012, Rolling Stone did a reader's poll, and they voted this as one of the top 10 concerts that year. And they also said one of the top 10 concerts in modern rock and roll history. That's pretty huge. I mean, you got to remember where Nine Inch Nails was, what they were doing at the time. And you got to remember what Bowie did at the time. And if you listen to some of David Bowie's music, like uh, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps, um, Andy Warhol, Look Back in Anger, Breaking Glass. If you look at some of those songs and then you listen to some of the Nine Inch Nail stuff, you can definitely see the influences that Trent Reznor had and what Bowie was doing at the time. He was setting the stage for the guys like Depeche Mode, Nine Inch Nails, uh, Oasis, um, Arcade Fire. He was he was moving forward. And that was the thing about Bowie. Bowie was always running years ahead of music, which is why I think some people listen to David Bowie's music and don't really understand it. They don't know what to make of it or what to make of him because he was so ahead of the t- of his time that now, so let's say Bowie came out with an album in 1984. It was cool. They liked it. He had some hits. But then you listen to it in 97, and you're like, wait a minute. This is, this is amazing. Because it not only aged well, it finally caught up to where it was supposed to be. And that was Bowie. He was always thinking that way from music, costume design, everything. There's, a, there's an interview on MTV that he did, that David Bowie did. It was great. And if you guys, you know, maybe I'll post it if I can. Um, This was a while ago. And he was talking about, this was right when MTV was dominating. I think the, gosh, I don't know when it was. I got to find out the name. I think it was in, I don't know. I'll find out the time. doesn't matter. But it was an amazing interview because he was interviewing um, Mark, Mark Goodman was, he was a VJ, huge VJ at the time, and was interviewing David Bowie. It was in 1983. And he was interviewing David Bowie and they were talking about music and they were talking about MTV and how MTV's really getting into every, everybody's TV. I mean, it was a big deal. MTV was a juggernaut when it came out. I did an episode um, about four months ago about MTV. So if you guys want to go back and listen to that, check it out because it's talking about just how huge MTV was and how it influenced me and what we were watching at the time. But He's, he's talking to MTV about music and Goodman's doing the MTV line. You know, you know how reporters are and David Bowie criticizes MTV for not playing videos by black artists. He rips into MTV for ignoring black artists. And he basically talks about 
how what MTV is doing is being racist. And Mark Goodman, you could tell, is uncomfortable in the video. He's like, well, you know, we, we look at the demographics and, you know, we got to play to these people. And the and he he's stumbling over his words. He's making himself sound like an idiot. And David Bowie says, I will say that lately I've seen a little bit more, but you guys are ignoring such and such and such and such. And Goodman's like, well, you know, you know, this is what we have to do. And he's like, no, you don't. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's, it's an amazing interview because he puts out MTV. It puts him on the spot. He calls out Mark Goodman. And at the end of it, Mark Goodman says, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? He goes, oh yeah. David Bowie's like smiling like, I hear what you're saying, but you're wrong. It's a really great interview. I'm going to try to play that clip. To this day, it's one of the biggest moments of MTV television because here you have a megastar who needs MTV from a business perspective, so to speak, to play the videos. And he just says, you guys are out of line, you're being racist, and you're passing an amazing black artist. Not just that, you're isolating a culture. And he rips them apart. I mean, he it's very classy. He doesn't yell. He doesn't very classy. And the thing about Bowie is it's not the first time. Bowie has been known for doing that because Bowie does, didn't care. You don't want to play my music videos? No problem. I don't need you to play my music videos. I'll just go on tour. I'll make my music. I don't care. And that's how Bowie was. Bowie was very much a groundbreaking man because he did not care what people thought, just like when he said he was gay. He did not care what people, how people viewed him. He did what he wanted when he wanted. Actually, recently, Ice-T said that David Bowie was a real one. He said he was the real man. So the clip uh, recently just came out again. Like, it makes its way around. Like, every now and then, somebody will just, like, find that clip for the first time, and they send it out, and all of a sudden, people talk about it. Well, Ice-T, not too long ago, actually, last month on Twitter, um, watched the clip again, and he shared it. And he said, you know, David Bowie is the real one. He didn't care. He supported everybody. And that's just the way it is. And Ice-T focused on one of the biggest parts of the interview. The interviewer tries to reason that the station can't play guys like the Isley Brothers, who are huge. Who are huge. And they said, we play the music that we think the entire country is going to like or going to like, I'm sorry. And he said, you know, we got to think about what the Isley Brothers means to a 17-year-old in America. And we can't play that because we got to look at the whole country. So David Bowie says, I can tell you what an artist like the Isley Brothers and Marvin Gaye means to a black 17-year-old. And surely he's part of America. You should have saw the look on on Mark Goodman's face. So uh, Ice-T shared the tweet with the video. And he said, a lot of people may not know that David Bowie put MTV on blast back in the day for not playing black artists. He sidestepped the double talk. Bowie was a real one. So to this day, Bowie is still getting praised for his groundbreaking views. It's really, they're not groundbreaking to the common sense people of the world. But at the time, nobody would have ever thought about that. 
pretty big, pretty big. But we did a lot though. But we did a lot of, lot of, lot of movies. I mean, he was in a lot of movies. Obviously, Labyrinth, The Prestige, Just a Gigolo, Into the Night. There's all kinds of movies. He's had cameos in Zoolander. Um, pretty good actor, actually. If you put Bowie in the right role, he's a pretty good actor. He was in a Western, a weird Western movie, too, and I can't remember the name of it. He was in a, a vampire movie called The Hunger. That was really good. He also, uh, believe it or not, was in Seven. Most people don't know that, but he was. He did uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. That's true. Yes, he did. <laughs> but Bowie, Bowie really did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. He didn't really care to make music all the time to make music. If he didn't feel like producing, he wouldn't. And his songs impacted. His songs talked about, in a very different way, things that were going on in the world. Mixed relationships, you know? Which were huge. Gay, straight, lesbian, whatever. Black, white, black, white girl, black, white boy, black, white girl, girl. Like, he talked about that stuff. He talked, he made fun of the music industry. He talked about fame and money and the drug that it is, but people ate it up. His lyrics went deeper than what most people realize. They weren't just a lot of fun songs at times. Sometimes they were. But I mean, if you just look at the song, I'm Afraid of Americans, and watch the video and read what it's about, it's a very interesting perspective into what was going on and what and how outsiders that don't live in America view the world or view the United States at that time. It's a, it's a song about really somebody visiting New York City for the first time and being overwhelmed by the lights and the traffic and then the crime that was behind everything, feeling like there was a criminal element behind you the whole time, chasing you through the city. It's a really interesting perspective and not far off, especially again, when the music came out. But David Bowie was also just a cultural icon. Everybody knew the name, even if you didn't know him as a person. Everybody recognized his face because how could you not recognize the two different colored eyes? I remember when I saw Labyrinth and I thought they were contacts or, or something. I was like, oh, he's got two different colored eyes. Those aren't real. They are real. <laughs> David Bowie has two different colored eyes. It happened because when he was younger, he got in a fight. It was him and his friend. I think he was around 15 at the time. And they all were hanging out, but they both liked the same girl. Shocker, it's over a girl, right? David Bowie was trying to get this girl to go on a date with him, but his friend succeeded. David Bowie pulled a kind of shady move, called up his friend and said, hey, she told me she, she, she can't go out. She doesn't want to go out anymore. I'm sorry. Um, you know, maybe another time. So his friend never went on the date. So his friend went out that night or that afternoon or evening or whatever and went to the, the, the club, the kids club. It's where all the kids could hang out, you know, play basketball, sports, music, whatever, and saw David Bowie and this girl together. Could you imagine? 
I know people get shot for that. Saw this girl together and he got upset. So he started fighting and he hit David Bowie, punched him hard in the eye, caused some sort of eruption or what have you. His eye got all swollen. And now when you look at David Bowie, he's got one blue eye and one dark eye. And, and it changes with the light. It's really interesting. But I used to think that was fake. I, I mean, for the longest time, I thought it was fake until I read up on it. I had no idea. So it's his, it's, it's his right eye that turns completely blue, and the left one is a darker shade of brown that almost looks like black at times. So when you look at Bowie, and he would use that to his advantage, he would change the other eye color to whatever he wanted. He would make them both blue. Like he used it all throughout his entire career. Later in life, he called his friends up and he said, you know what? I think I owe you. He's like, you did me a huge favor. Look at this marketing now. Thank you. <laughs> I think they, they, they remained friends and everything was cool after that. But yeah, that, that, that's a real thing. It's not some, you know, artistic you know, imagery or a contact or whatever, that, that it's real. Which I thought was just awesome. But he used that too in fashion shows because David Bowie was a huge, huge fashion icon from the way he dressed, from what he did in the industry to his wife, Iman, which whom he married in 1991 and, and they stayed married till he passed away in 2016. <laughs> Iman, one of the biggest supermodels of her time, beautiful woman, beautiful. Um, yeah, she's from Somalia. I could do a thing on her. She's got a great, interesting story. But um, yeah, they were they were together forever. And again, Bowie breaking through barriers. Here's David Bowie, a musician from England, from from London. Okay. A musician from the 60s, drugs, hung, hanging out with Freddie Mercury, hanging out with Iggy Pop, changing his hair color, gay, straight, bisexual, marries Amon, a Somalian model. Unreal to me because he did what he wanted to do. And they got a lot of grief, and it was even in the 90s. They got grief about it. Well, how does it work being, you know, you're white, and, and he's, she's like, he's like, she's from Somalia. <laughs> like, what do you, like, he would shut down reporters, like nobody's business. And they were out and about all the time. She loved him. And so he would get involved with some of her fashion, fashion shows. He would help coordinate those. He would do the music for him. He would even design stuff with her and sometimes wear those outfits on the runway himself. Bowie appeared in just as many fashion programs and magazines as he did in music-related programs and magazines. Matter of fact, Bowie produced a huge fashion documentary. I think it came out in 1999, maybe 2000. Huge. And went deep into the heart of New York's fashion world, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That was David Bowie. Everywhere. He had an impact. He had an impact on me, not just from Labyrinth. And I've told this story too. When, my, when I found out that we were going to have a baby and, and my wife at the time was pregnant, a 
was super excited. You know, everything that everybody says, nervous, excited, what have you. Um, I'm losing my voice, guys. I've been talking so much today because this is the third time I've recorded this podcast. Unbelievable. But I was excited. And I was, when it got to the point where baby's moving and all that, we start to play music for the baby. Take my phone speaker and put it up to her belly or put the headphones on her belly and go through different music. Some music, I was like, I didn't want to play, you know, like, hey, let's play some hardcore metal right now with this baby's in the womb. I just wanted to really get the baby to move. I mean, I read about how important it is. I believe it's important anyway. And I did it. Prince and Bowie. Every time I played Bowie, especially Heroes, my son, although I, I, yeah, I guess I knew he was going to be a boy, at the time, or, you know, he would move a lot. He did that with Prince, too. She would get frustrated because she's like, come on, I want him to listen to other stuff, too. You know, it's got to be, let's put some country music on. And I put country music on, no movement. So she just chalked it up to, you know, he's done moving. But she tried to do the same experiment when I was at work. And I know I've told this story before. So if you've heard it, just just bear with me. And so she would put her country music on because she liked country music. Nothing. She put Purple Rain on. Boom. And I mean, the minute it started, he started moving. She put David Bowie Heroes on nonstop through the whole song. And then she'd try another song and he'd stop. So here, here we are now. Let's fast forward to my son is four years old, four and a half. God. Um, to this day, we, we listen to Bowie. He knows Bowie, recognizes his face. Heroes is our song. Although the words may not line up to any special meaning with him and I directly, that's our song. It's a song that I would put him to sleep to when he was a baby and couldn't sleep. It's a song I would sing to him when he was scared. I remember New Year's Eve when he was sick up all night and he was only two years old. I remember putting Bowie on and just singing and rocking him and taking care of him to calm him down. I remember just a year and a half ago when he was super sick, throwing up and other stuff. And I remember waking or holding him in the middle of the night after being up for 36 hours straight. That's a true story. 36 hours straight. Dancing slowly with him. Not too long ago, I was in the kitchen and, and we just had our, one of our mini playlists on while I was making food. And he's over there playing with his cars and, you know, whatever he's into in his own little world. Well, I make dinner and have music on. That song came on. He wanted me to put him, to hold him. First, he said, put me on your shoulders. He said, no, hold me. And I just kind of sang it with him. Until the song was over, he got back down and went back and started playing again. Whenever he's upset, that song comes on. I hum it. I sing it. He will look at me sometimes and be like, that's our song, Dad. I'm like, yes, sir. He's got a, um, in the bedroom, I've got a framed 
really nice picture that I bought before he came out of the womb uh, of David Bowie from the Heroes album. And it's got the lyrics, well, at least part of the lyrics to Heroes on there. And he knows it every time. That's Bowie. That's Bowie. I want that to forever last with him. Whether he likes Bowie a year from now or he stops when he's a teenager, I want him to look back at that moment and go, man, my dad really liked David Bowie and you know what? This song meant the world to me and maybe one day tell his kids my story about why I became so obsessed with David Bowie. But it is. Uh, when, when David Bowie passed away, 2016, just a really bad year. I mean, we lost so many people in 2016. David Bowie, Prince, George Michael, Alan Rickman, um, <clears throat> Lenny from Motorhead, Lenny from Motorhead. Uh, there's so many people I, I can't even think off the top of my head. It was like enough already. It was like, oh, just stop. And I remember when Bowie passed and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Because Bowie had cancer. Not many people knew about it. He didn't talk about it. He didn't make a thing about it. He just went through his life as a shape-shifting alien, continued to produce music, write books, uh, or write stories, paint, sell his artwork, promote other young artists such as Arcade Fire when they came on the scene, do things behind the scenes while he was fighting and battling cancer. In 2015, and I don't know the exact moment, there's a really good <clears throat> documentary on HBO right now, and it's just called The Last Days. I think it's called The Last Days of Bowie. It's David Bowie, The La oh, it's The Last Five Years. And it's about his battle with cancer and what he was doing at that time. And it really took a lot out of him, but he never, he never stopped being Bowie. He never stopped breaking barriers. He never stopped producing music. And he didn't want people to kind of look at him and say, oh, he's got cancer, oh my gosh, you know. He just wanted to be Bowie and, and live a private life. And he came to terms with the fact that he was not gonna make it, he was gonna die one day and he wanted to do something he wanted to produce another final album which I thought was amazing because to do anything when you're sick is impossible at least you think it is but he wanted to produce an album and so he did and the name of the album was Black Star and it's a very cool jazz rock, garth, gothic rock, uh, art rock, like very interesting album, but it is about his life. It's the final album. It's his 26th studio album, and it was released on January 8th, 2016, which is David Bowie's 69th birthday. And I got to tell you, Black Star is an intense album. It is really an in-depth look into his creativity. It's very experimental at times. Um, 
but it is his life through cancer. And he, it was liver cancer that he had, by the way. Um, and he, <clears throat> nobody, nobody knew that he had cancer. I say nobody, meaning the public didn't know. Because two days after that album was released, Bowie died. And it, he, that was when we found out that he had cancer. There were other people that worked with him, but they kept it. They kept it completely hush-hush. Won a Grammy, the 59th, uh, 59 Grammy Awards. I think it won three Grammys, actually. And it was nominated. No, I think it won Best Rock Performance and Best Rock Song. Unbelievable. And at the Brit Awards, it was British Album of the Year in 2017. And that's not one of those ancillary prizes. This album is a journey of a man who is coming to terms with his life, who he's been with, as far as people that he's encountered, his wife, his family, and his, his fear and his understanding of death. It was really a unique album, and it is different. And the recording process of this album, they really dive into on, on David Bowie the last five years. I thought it was a great documentary. It's, on, it's, it's like an hour and a half long. It's not too long, but it's on HBO. It's really good if you want to kind of learn about Bowie and, and see what happens. But yeah, he passed away. Not before, though, completing a stage play, which starred, um, God, I can't think of his name, Michael C. Hall. You know, Dexter. It was like a, it's an off-Broadway musical called Black Star. Or, I'm sorry, I think it's called Lazarus. Yeah. And they take inspiration from the man who fell to earth. It's a lot about that. I mean, it's definitely an alien. It's that. But what it is, more so than anything, is a connection to Bowie's life. And Bowie was hands-on until the day he died with that. It's interesting enough, too, Bowie's Lazarus hit number 40 on the top 100 of 2016, which is pretty huge. And then later, it reached number eight because people were downloading it and wanted to hear it, watch the video. But yeah, Lazarus uh, with Michael C. Hall. Now, I've never seen it. They talk about this in the documentary. It looks really cool, but there are times where Michael C. Hall was like, yeah, Bowie came to me and said, you know what? I'm dying, and I, and I, I want you to do this. Which I thought was really interesting. And Michael C. Hall's like, okay, I guess I'll do it. But David Bowie was more the music, you know? And, and, and that's why I think for me, as, as looking at him, I can appreciate everything he's done. Even if I don't like all his music, I can appreciate him. And he has such a connection with my life, my son. I mean, when he died, it, I was, it had, I couldn't tell you the last, I, I don't think I know. I mean, him and Prince, sad. Like, I could get tears from it. I remember finding out that news, grieving, essentially, because this person had been such a part of your life. And then later having that connection with my son and moments that I remember from my childhood, buying the vinyl, buying the tapes, Labyrinth. I mean, we just, we just watched Labyrinth the other day. David Bowie was it. 
And his music, when I hear it, it's like, I'm not changing the channel. You know, you get in moods where you don't want to hear the music sometimes, even though you like it. I just leave it on. I'm like, nah, it's Bowie. I just don't change it. And it's just amazing what he brought to the world. And I don't think a lot of people understand that, how groundbreaking he was as an individual. If you want to hear something even more groundbreaking, look at what he did when he talked about the internet. Years ago, talked about how one day too many people are going to rely on getting information from the internet, whether it's right, wrong, or whatever. They're going to be too engrossed in the internet and they're going to lose connection, becoming more like robots and aliens than, any, than anybody else. He talks about the dark side of the internet long before we were facing the problems that we were now, before Facebook and MySpace. He talks about that. He saw it down the road. He talked about how it's going to change the music industry and what he believes is a good and bad thing for the music industry. But more importantly, humanity. He was always thinking ahead. That's just amazing to me because there's people now that still can't see the writing on the wall when it comes to the internet. But David Bowie, I think, will always be a part of my life. And when I hear that song Heroes, with it not just being an amazing song, I will always think of my son. I always think of moments I had with him. Good ones and bad ones makes me tear up because I, I can feel that love. And I, and I watch him sometimes when that song comes on to see if he pauses. And he will sometimes. He'll pause and then continue playing. It clicks with him. And that moment right there is something that I'll never be able to buy or force. It's a real, real moment. And uh, yeah, David Bowie is part of it. So, well, there it is, guys. This is why Bowie's so important to me. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it comes out good because I'm not recording it again. I, I just can't. I'm literally losing my voice. <laughs> But thank you again. And also, hey, I just want to give a big shout out to my boys down in Austin. Man, I'm so bummed out that I couldn't get there. COVID, I didn't have it, but there were some changes and we had to, we had to postpone the, uh, the live podcast from Oasis Texas Brewing in Austin. But I'll be there. I'll be there when I'm ready to have a beer again, guys. So uh, make sure you check them out, Oasis Texas Brewing. You can check out their link on my, on my page, the Life of an Average Joe Podcast.com. If you're in Texas, just look up, uh, they got a beer finder there. You can literally type it in, type in your zip code and find out where their beer is and go try some. That's all I can say. I mean, support local and buy a new beer. And if you don't live in Texas and you're really interested in them, check out their website. I don't know, buy a t-shirt, a hat, a sticker, a koozie. They can't ship beer. But if you know somebody in Texas, you know, there's, there's ways around that. That's all I'm saying. They don't promote that. Neither do I. I'm just saying there's ways around that. So I can't wait to get to Austin. We will have that live podcast uh, coming up, uh, hopefully in the next month, uh, February, maybe March. Uh, we're just going to kind of wait and see what happens. There's a lot of things going on down there. So uh, we decided it would be best if we put a pause on it. But thank you, as always, for listening to the Life of an Average Joe podcast. I will see you guys next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. Wait, is it February now? No, it's not February. Next Wednesday is February. Oh my gosh. I had to double check. I had to double look. I, I thought maybe for one second I was completely thrown off and I was in February already. But I will see you next week, okay? Next Wednesday for season seven. We're kicking off season seven. A lot going on. February is a short month. 
but we are cramming in some episodes. It's Super Bowl month, a lot going on. Not that I care about the Super Bowl. I only care about the halftime show. I mean, Eminem, Dr. Dre, Mary J. Blige, Snoop Dogg. Come on. Is Kendrick Lamar there too? Am I making that up? It's the Super Bowl I've been waiting for, so I could really care less. I've only watched one NFL game this entire season, like full game. And I can't say I was even watching it. It's when the Cowboys lost. I'm not a Cowboys fan. I just happen to be at Tupps Brewery hanging out with my homeboy, David, this dude and that dude coming back here next month. And that was the only one. So anyway, I digress. I'm going to get out of here, go relax for a little bit. You guys take care. We'll see you. Go, go listen to some Bowie. Go check out some of the things I said. I'll try to post those videos. It's hard to post the videos of, his, of the interviews because they're, they're just so old and all that. But I'm going to try to post that video. I want you guys to check it out. It'll be at uh, Life of an Average Joe podcast on Facebook or Instagram. I don't think I can post that video on my website. I'll find out. I don't want to get in trouble. I get enough trouble anyway. All right, that's it for me. I'm out.